This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. We've been following the developments around the coronavirus, which as of today has a new name, COVID-19. While there are still no confirmed cases of COVID-19 in the islands, a Hawaii resident was put into mandatory quarantine yesterday after arriving from China's Hubei province. This follows federal guidelines to quarantine anyone who has visited Hubei in the last 14 days, the length of time that it takes to show symptoms. There's also 26 people who recently visited China in self-quarantine, either at home or at a hotel. It's a mix of visitors and local residents, and the State Department of Health contacts them daily. The State Department of Health Director Bruce Anderson, State Epidemiologist Dr. Sarah Park, and Lieutenant Governor Josh Green spoke at a news conference about the quarantine yesterday afternoon. The Lieutenant Governor said the state is monitoring the spread of the virus and will adjust to the situation. We have to be prepared long-term, and we also will have to be flexible because if this becomes a global pandemic, it will change everything. It will change all of our capacity in every jurisdiction across the country and world on how you deal with an epidemic like that. But for now, this is also a good test for us to put an individual into the federal quarantine at the base to make sure we can give them perfect services, to make sure that they are comfortable and safe. And if they were to get sick, we have excellent hospitals, each of which are capable of providing the full testing and care because of the hard work that Dr. Park and Dr. Anderson have done these last few days. So we are completely capable to handle whatever medical concern there is. It's highly likely that this individual will ride out 14 days and will then return to their regular life. But we don't want to make any, uh, take any risk or make any exceptions until we can respond to what the virus is globally. Uh, so we're being very safe. Hilton Rathel is the CEO of the Healthcare Association of Hawaii. We sat down with him last week to talk about whether our facilities statewide are ready to deal with an outbreak if it were to happen here. The risk is low, but we also wondered if neighbor islands should remain on guard, even though international flights mainly come through Honolulu. We all know how the airlines work. You can hop from city to city. And so is it possible that it could come into Hawaii? Yes, it's possible. And would it only come exclusively through the international airport? No, I mean, it could come through um, one of our neighboring islands as well. Okay, and if there is a, a situation where we've got a case and someone needs to be hospitalized and maybe, I don't know, brought over here to Honolulu if, if uh, there be a need, how does that work? Well, we wouldn't necessarily have to uh, bring a case to Honolulu even if there was a suspected case. So. There is screening going on at the airports, and basically the screening consists of two parts. The first part is, do you have any respiratory sy symptoms? Do you have uh, you know, signs of the flu? Do you have a temperature? Um, do you have, um, are you coughing? Are you, are you sneezing? So that's, that's the first one. And then, have you been to China, or have you been in close contact with someone who was in China or has been infected? So there are the two different components. Now. If there is a suspected case of the flu, um, of, of the novel coronavirus, it doesn't mean that they have it. It could just be the flu. And it's actually much more likely that they actually have the flu than they have the novel coronavirus. Um, but if, they, if it is suspected, then um, what we, we have, all the hospitals have, um, there's, well, the, sorry, there would be screening done at the airport. And if necessary, a patient, if it was determined there was a suspected case of the novel coronavirus, uh, the patient then would be transported uh, via ambulance to a hospital. Now, when you say transported, they would just be transported in, in a normal manner. Uh, you don't need any special equipment. The, they would put a mask on the patient. 
uh, to stop the spread of any uh, airborne germs. Um, but they do not need to be in any other type of, uh, you know, the, the paramedic personnel, for example, do not have, need to have on full body suits or anything like that. They would just take normal screening precautions and then the patient would be transported to a hospital. Um, all of the um, major hospitals across the state, including on the neighbor islands, do have negative um, isolation rooms or negative pressure isolation rooms. So while a patient is being evaluated, um, a patient can be held in a negative press pressure isolation room. And again, they, they would be treated with, uh, by staff. The staff um, at all the hospitals have all the necessary precautions. Um, if it was a suspected case, the Department of Health would be notified and the Department of Health would take control or, or, or at least have some control. If the patient is really sick, uh, they could be kept in the hospital. If they're just showing mild symptoms and it was a suspected case of the novel coronavirus, the patient uh, could be isolated at home or if, they're in a, if they are a visitor, they would be isolated to the hotel room. And the Department of Health would be checking on that patient, whether they're at home or whether they're in a hotel room. They would be checking on them on a daily basis, if not more frequently, just to make sure they would be doing a video check to make sure the patient's where they are supposed to be um, and that they are being confined for that potential incubation period, which is right now that it's up to about 14 days um, is, is what they, the normal, incub uh, the normal sorry, isolation period is for up, up to 14 days. So if someone is, let's say, in a hotel room, I know there are probably questions about, well, you know, how does that work for like airflow, air conditioning, whether, uh, you know, what's the difference between that and let's say uh, in a special uh, what is it? Low, negative low pressure, pressure negative isolation. Pressure, yeah. Negative pressure isolation room. Yeah. Um, yeah. Again, if a person is is really sick, they would be confined to a hospital in one of these specialized rooms. And all of our major hospitals across the state, and we have them on all the major islands. So on on Oahu, on Kauai, on Maui, on the Big Island, we do have the negative pressure isolation rooms. Um, so it, again, if they are really sick, um, they would be uh, confined to one of those rooms. However. If it was just a suspected case, right, then uh, they would either be isolated either at home or again a visitor in a hotel room. Um, now, the, they, they would be asked, you know, to stay there. You can bring food in, you know, people would bring food in. The, the patient would have, a, or the suspected patient would have a mask on at all times. And generally, what they recommend is that you would uh, change that mask about four times a day, about every six hours. So you would just change the mask. The patient or the suspected patient would actually have a mask on um, so that if, if they do have the virus, they're not projecting all those droplets and not being projected out into the environment. I do want to talk more about the masks and the, the effectiveness of that, but also the kit that would determine whether or not we have a positive case. Because right now, if we do swab people, we've got to send the results or, or the, or the uh, specimens back to the lab on the mainland. Yes, that is correct. So if, if a case was suspected, you'd take two swabs. One of them would be to test for the flu, and the other one would be to test for the novel coronavirus. Um, but up until essentially today, the only place on the U.S. that could actually test for this, um, the novel coronavirus, is the CDC lab in Atlanta, Georgia. So obviously that takes time. I mean, you've got to FedEx it over there, you've got, uh, you've got to ship it over there, then it goes into a queue, then you've got to wait for the results to come back. So it's literally a matter of days. Now, the reason that the CDC lab in Atlanta is the only place that has the testing, again, is because this is a new virus. And so 
the they have been working um, on developing test kits, and I, my understanding is that they're about to be shipped out to a number of cities across the U.S. Now. When that happens, even when the test kits come out, the, the local lab, or the, and we have a very, very good lab here in Hawaii, would still need to go through their own testing, make sure they put the protocols in place, and they're okay with that. So it may take a few days for them before they're ready to actually start testing. Once they get the kits, go through that protocol to make sure that, they are te- you know, that everything's working okay, then they can actually start testing, and you can get the results back then in about four hours. Okay, but there's still that ramp-up time. That is correct, yes. Okay, and then my understanding is that, that not only the Department of Health lab might get it, but potentially Tripler, because if there is a facility isolating people, let's say, on the military basis, that they might need. Yeah, they could potentially do that. But again, the lab here is in, uh, we do have a very, very good lab here in Hawaii, and they could test for any suspected cases on the, uh, anywhere on the islands, including at Tripler, if necessary. Okay, so let's get back to talking about the masks, because... We're seeing them more. I was at all the Moana Shopping Center. Uh, 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 a clerk had it. A number of uh, people in Waikiki, Japanese tourists, just you know, nervous. Chinese tourists, I don't know. They were just, uh, you know, they just uh, maybe some psychological reassurance that they're doing everything they can to make sure they don't get sick. Well, the general recommendation is, and we we as an association are working very very closely with the Department of Health. Um, we're in daily contact with them, and then they're in daily, if not more frequent, contact with the CDC. So there is very, very frequent and effective communication going on. The general recommendation from the Department of Health and the CDC is that the surgical masks that people typically wear, that you know, you see them around on, on people have been wearing them for years, right? Especially a lot of uh, Asian tourists travel with surgical masks. The surgical masks are they're much more effective if you actually are sick, if you have a flu, if you have a cold or if you were to have the novel coronavirus, then the, the surgical masks actually stop uh, the spread or help stop the spread of the disease or the pathogens. However, if you are healthy and are wandering around and you were to come into somewhat close contact with someone who has a flu, the regular surgical masks are not very effective at all at uh, protecting against airborne disease because the viruses, which are very, very small, can go through the mask. And also the regular surgical mask um, that people wear, it's a very loose fit. So there's, there's gaps around the cheeks, there's gaps around your nose. And so those are areas where if there were to be a pathogen in the air, uh, the flu or whatever, um, it can fairly easily get inside, you know, get, in, get into someone. So again, the, okay. the regular surgical masks are much more effective for people who are sick to, so that they stop spreading disease. And if they st- sneezing or if they droplets, the, the mask will catch those. But it's far less effective at stopping people from actually getting sick or being if they're in the vicinity of someone who is sick. So it might be a false sense of security. But well, uh, yes, it is a false sense of security. Yeah. And that's why, for example, even the airlines and the hotels, they're not recommending that their staff actually wear these masks because of that, um, that particular mask. Now, there are much more effective masks, you know, high-level masks, more, um, more expensive masks, with different types of ratings for different types of conditions that will actually do that screening out. But because they are thicker materials and the more expensive, it's actually harder to breathe. 
you know, it's, it's not something that a person would normally wear, especially if they're out walking or exercising or doing things like that. So They, they get awful hot. <laughs> they, they do get very hot, right. And um, so, yes, yes, there are effective masks out there that will screen against these pathogens, but it's not, again, it's not recommended that the average person uh, wear a mask or need to wear a mask. People are so focused on this right now, but we are kind of in the middle of flu season and you know, people have been urged to get their flu shot. We would absolutely recommend that people get their flu shots and take basic screening measures, which is, you know, wash your hands frequently. Don't touch your unwashed hands up against your nose, mouth, and eyes because that's how the pathogen can get in. But in terms of the flu, you're absolutely correct that the flu is a much bigger issue across the U.S. and around the world right now. For example, this flu season, we have there is 19 million confirmed cases of the illness across the U.S. There are 180,000 hospitalizations and 10,000 deaths. So let me just say that one more time. This flu season, just the influenza, right? And it's not a particularly bad one, but this particular flu season, there are 19 million confirmed cases of illness across the U.S., 180,000 hospitalizations, and 10,000 deaths. Now that's just this flu season to date. So the flu season's not over. So in terms of an illness or the potential of getting sick, the flu is a much, much more active and influential influenza than the um, than the novel coronavirus. Okay, so just some perspective there, as as we can, because there's a lot of hand wringing going on, uh, you know, a lot of stress. Well, there is, and you know, it is. We understand why the public is concerned about this. It is a new virus, and so there's no vaccine. It's anticipated that at best it may be a year before there's a vaccine out there uh, for it. Um, so at this point in time, you know, it's it, because it is new, it's a new, basically it's a new strain of the flu. You know, it's not a, like a different disease. It is a different strain of the flu. There are flu. There are other coronaviruses out there. They've called this one, for want of a better label, the Novel coronavirus. But some people are saying maybe they should call it the Wuhan coronavirus because of where it originated. Um, but that's what they're calling. So there are other coronaviruses out there. This, this one they're calling the novel coronavirus. This is the, the latest uh, version of, of the coronavirus. And we, we may, a few years from now or next year, we may, there may be another version that comes out as well. So okay. we just don't know. In Hawaii, we're very, very well prepared. As, as I said, our hospitals are very well prepared. There are screening protocols that are going on at the, at the airport. All the hospitals across the state, including the neighbor islands, are screening visitors. And they're asking those, those questions again. You know, do you have flu-like symptoms? And if you have, if you do, have you traveled to China or have you been in close contact with someone who's traveled to China? So the, again, to date, we have no, just want to reiterate, we have no confirmed cases. And not only that, we have no, no even suspected cases that, of this particular virus. So we are very, very well prepared. If there were to be an outbreak, we have backup. You know, we have our first line of defense, which is our hospitals. They're all very well prepared. The staff are all well trained. They're on alert for this, obviously, because everyone's hearing about it every day. In addition to that, if there were to be an outbreak, and we don't believe there will be emergency services personnel, we do have backup supplies of equipment. We have backup supplies of masks, suits, all the different types of things that we need. So in Hawaii, we're very, very fortunate. We're very, very well prepared. And it, it may come here, but if it does come, um, we, we are well prepared to deal with it. That was Hilton Reito, president and CEO of the Healthcare Association of Hawaii, talking about our state of readiness in light of the coronavirus outbreak in China, now known as COVID-19.
This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. In today's Backyard Quiz, we celebrate the Hawaiian language. Internationally, February is Indigenous Languages Month, but here in Hawaii, February is Hawaiian Language Month. Spoken Hawaiian is a native language of Hawaii, and in 1820, New England missionaries brought with them written language in the form of the Bible and other literature when they arrived. In no time at all, Hawaiians developed their own alphabet, put their language to paper, and would achieve 100% national literacy. In 1896, education through the Hawaiian language in both public and private schools was outlawed on the model of U.S. policy toward the use of American Indian languages in education. Now, teachers were told that speaking Hawaiian with children would result in termination of employment. Children were harshly punished for speaking Hawaiian in school. By the 1980s, the community of affluent, um, affluent speakers had dwindled to a few elders and a tiny geographically isolated population on the island of Ni'ihau. Hawaiian language speaking children under the age of 18 numbered less than 50. The demise of Hawaiian language was imminent. Hawaiian Renaissance of the 70s brought attention to this problem and a renewed effort to teach and learn the language. Part of that effort was the establishment of the first Hawaiian language immersion preschool program, the Aha Punanaleo program. That, that program now has multiple schools across multiple islands. But which one was the very first school open in eight? 1984. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. If you think you know the answer, the first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from the Realtors and staff of Locations, proudly supporting HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii's people and places. Locations, welcome home. coffee? Well, Honolulu Civil Beat has our reality check today. Business reporter Stuart Yurton joins us this morning. Hi there, Stuart. Hi, Catherine. So tell us about the story that you've got online today. So uh, we have a couple of bills in the legislature now that would tighten the uh, label requirement for coffee. Uh, one is for roasted coffee, uh, the coffee you get in bags and cans here sold. Um, the other would, would apply to bottled or pre-made canned coffee that you get uh, refrigerated from the grocery store. And essentially, they tighten the requirements so that to be called, say, Kona coffee, you need, um, you're going to need at least 51% 
Um, coffee, if you, if you sell it as roasted Kona coffee, it's got to be 51%. Uh, that's an increase from 10% now. N- now the law is, well, if it's a Kona blend, you can say Kona blend and then have small print that says 10%. You know, it's interesting because I just bought some Kona coffee, you know, those single serve things to try it. And uh, I was thinking, oh, this doesn't really taste like Kona coffee. And I wonder if I, did I just pay a dollar more for something that really isn't, you know, Kona? Well, you have to read the label pretty closely, and that's the that's part of the issue here. And the the, the people proponents of this say, well, ten percent really isn't a lot of coffee. It's not enough to taste, so uh, we need to bump it up to fifty one percent. Now they've been talking about this issue for some time, though. Yes, this has been going on for years. Um, in the past, there has been opposition. Uh, this time around, there's really not a lot of opposition in the testimony that I've seen. Maybe there's something going on behind the scenes, but we don't see really any opposition at all in testimony. Uh, so it looks like this might actually go through. That's the thought. Yeah, because uh, our laws, I mean, they're kind of flabby, right? I mean, other states have stricter uh, rules about these kinds of things. That's right. And and that's really the trend. You know, you look at this and it doesn't take a lot of research to, to find in other state statutes, lots of laws very strictly requiring uh, these these labeling uh, requirements. Like in Vermont maple syrup, it has to be 100 percent maple syrup to call it Vermont maple syrup. It's got to be 100 uh, percent. Idaho potatoes, Wisconsin cheese. Um, Tennessee whiskey now has one. It, it's it's a really it's a big trend and Hawaii is pretty behind on this and in that context fifty one percent is pretty modest. And so what's been the I guess the opposition in the years past? Well, in the years past, the opposition has come from blenders who want to uh, blend it and sell uh, coffee as Kona coffee when it's not pure Kona coffee. And that, again, has been the opposition in the past. That's not happening this time around. And, and what about the roasting issue? Well, one of the one of the bills that that did that died um, involves the a ban. Uh, it would have banned importing green coffee into Hawaii. Um, the idea was we should have to roast it first before bringing it in. That would kill uh, invasive species like this uh, coffee rust fungus, which is really uh, uh, people are afraid of. The farmers are. Um, right now, technically under federal law, the USDA says you can't import green coffee into Hawaii. Um, but there's a big loophole because if you import it into California, there's no problem doing that, and then ship it here. It's not technically importing it. And the state uh, DA, uh, Agriculture Department, allows that. Yeah, well, we don't want any more invasive species in the state. Right. <laughs> the well, the we farmers, <laughs> no, the farmers are really, really upset about this because they they say that this <clears throat> USDA law was put in place, regulation was put in place to protect against uh, coffee border beetle. Um, and it's it's pretty clear in the regulation that that was the purpose of it. And the farmers are saying, look, it was allowed to happen here. We brought it in anyway. And now we have this very uh, damaging pest, this beetle. Um, let's stop it before we get the coffee rust. But again, that bill stalled. So mm. that's not going anywhere. Are there any particular lawmakers who've been champions on this, uh, you know, Kona percentage issue? 
Yes, well, Representative uh, Richard Cregan from from that area of the Big Island um, is is definitely one of the big proponents. Um, but this has a lot of support um, across a number of uh, people in, interested in agriculture. But again, uh, Representative Cregan's really been a, a pushing this. Okay, well, kind of makes sense to me. But <laughs> we'll have to see how things go and, and see if it uh, if it passes. Yes, we will. All right. Well, thanks so much, Stuart. Appreciate it. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Check. Read his story online about coffee at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting Hokusai's Mount Fuji, featuring the Ukiyo-e print series, displayed one at a time throughout the year. HonoluluMuseum.org. A national expert on domestic violence was in Honolulu recently to talk to Hawaii judges and community groups. Jackson Katz spoke with us about the need for men to step up to help end the cycle of violence. I often say if, if all it took for men to speak out on these matters was a personal experience of knowing a woman close to them who have been victims or targets of other men's violence, if all, that, if all it took for men to get involved was to have that personal experience, there would be billions of men involved, because billions of men in the world, virtually every man that I know has women and girls in their lives who have been assaulted by other men and who have been traumatized in various ways by misogyny and sexism. And, and so the, to me, the question is, why aren't there more men speaking out? I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm one of those who are, you know, I am speaking out, but why aren't more men speaking out? And a big part of my work for all these years has been how do we figure out how to change that and how do we get more men to speak out and how do we get more men in positions of leadership, institutional, political, cultural, religious, you know, familial, sports. How do we get more men who have authority and influence with other men and young men and boys to stand with women as their partners and allies and speak out about some obvious injustices that are ongoing? And to me, that's the, that's the challenge, and that's what I'm here to, to do in uh, Hawaii. So was there no, I guess, uh, personal experience that you had, or, or was there a case that you came across that just kind of no. turned the corner for you? No, no, no. I mean, you know, there's... Everybody has complicated personal histories, but no, there was no incident or event or personal story other than, you know, um, I'm a you know, conscious young man who was looking around and seeing incredible injustice around me and, and, and women living in fear of men. And, and when I was in college, you know, enjoying my freedom, seeing my female peers not enjoying their freedom. In other words, constantly worried about how they're going to get home at night and get rides. And then there was take back the night rallies that were organized for women speaking out saying we should have the right to walk out at night and and i was thinking if i were a woman and i had to worry about that constantly like my personal safety in the in the way that women do in our society i know i'd be so ticked off about it and i and i started writing about that as a young guy as a young journalist and 
and I started hearing stories from women around me, and it was like, oh, my God, this is so much more pervasive than I had been aware. And I also realized early on as a young guy that the issues of sexism and, and gender inequality were also directly linked and intersecting with racial injustice and heterosexism and all these other systems of inequality. And I realized as a straight white guy that I was in a position with some skills, and I, had, I was in a position to do something about all this, and it just went from there. What makes your message so different, you think? I'm specifically talking about the ways in which men's responsibility and accountability at all levels, including institutional accountability, has been overlooked in many ways. I think the, the mainstream conversation about men's engagement in these matters is these are fundamentally women's issues and women's concerns. When I say these, I'm talking about domestic violence and sexual assault and everything else. They're fundamentally about women and women's lives and women's concerns, and there are some good men who want to help out those women, and so they support those women. And I think that's a deeply problematic frame. Men commit the vast majority of the abuse. Men are also holding most social, economic, and political power in the society. So to say that it's a women's issue and a women's concern that women need to be addressing fundamentally, but men not so much, to me is like got it backwards. It's fundamentally about men and male power, and because I'm a man and because I have a great deal of experience in, in the sports culture, you know, my, my program is the first domestic and sexual violence prevention program, both in professional and college athletics, in the United States military, and all the branches of the United States military. And so that, I bring that perspective, and like, how do you talk to men? What, is it, what kind of language do you need to use to, to get men to engage rather than to shut down? How do you invite rather than indict men? How do you... How do adult men need to play a role in the lives of boys and girls and others, not just uh, not just among adults, but I mean among kids. I mean, I mean, this, these are problems, huge problems in 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 uh, adolescent populations and in Hawaii and everywhere else. And what where where are the adult men? Not just the adult women, but where are the adult men who are incredibly influential? Not just fathers and uncles and other men who are in families, which that's incredibly important too, but. The teachers, the principals of, of high schools, the, 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 the educational leaders, the coaches, all these different men who play an incredibly important role, and many of them doing great work as mentors and teachers. But we, this is another whole area that ha there are people who have taken initiatives, but nowhere near systematic enough. So I, you know, I talk about all of that, and I try to figure out how people can uh, step up and go to the next level. We're in the 21st century. We know a lot. The question is, what do we know about how, how to generate the political will and the, you know, the educational leadership and the kind of things that have been missing? Uh, that's the kind of thing that I talk about. How does culture factor into this? There's a lot of overlap between cultures around these issues, and there's some distinctions. And so it's important to acknowledge those distinctions in an incredibly racially and ethnically diverse place like Hawaii, which is unique in its mix, if you will. It's important to acknowledge that there are going to be subcultural differences, but abuse is wrong across the board, no matter what culture it takes place in. And also within each culture, within each sub subculture, um, there are um, you know there are strong women who are trying to change some of the practices that are in those subcultures that have contributed to the second class status of women. And there are men and women who are working in that in that regard. And that's true in white culture. It's true in you know communities of color. Everybody has, you know, a big challenge on their hands because we're talking about big, big time change over many years and decades. Because we're trying to undo some practices that have been around in our species for thousands of years. This is not new stuff. You know, men's violence against women and men's controlling women and men's sexually 
and sexual entitlement to women is not an, a, a recent problem in our species. It's just that here we are in the 21st century with all our brilliance that we can, you know, as a species, we, we are so brilliant and we can do so many incredible things, but we can't yet figure out how to organize ourselves so that we don't have, you know, thousands, millions of victims of harassment and abuse and violence. I mean, and, and, and boys are born just as loving as girls. Boy children are born just as loving as girl children are, you know, are born. What happens? You know, what, what, why between the age of three and four, this loving little boy, and now he's 16 years old, you know, pushing his girlfriend against a locker because she disrespected him in front of his, you know, in front of his boys. What, what are we doing wrong that, that this is continuing to happen, and how can we change that? I mean, again, these are big, big challenges, but there's lots of people. You know, I work with DVAC here, the Domestic Violence Action Center, who's up. They do incredible work, but they've got their hands full just trying to, you know, look at the number of victims and survivors coming through the door on a daily basis and the number of cases that people have to deal with. If we could prevent this from happening, if we could change the social structures and the belief systems that contribute to that, I mean, think about how much healthier we'd all be. So think about how, less, how much less tragedy there would be. So you think the answer then is in trying to change these institutions, having people step up, and then also uh, going back to the families and, and how we raise our, our young boys? All of that, absolutely, and, and the media culture and the sports culture. I mean, all the different ways in which, and religious beliefs, all the different ideas about gender and, and manhood and womanhood and power and control and, and, and how violence plays into all that is what has to be under the critical spotlight. Unless people subscribe to the um, bad apples theory of social problems, that it's just a, a handful of bad people, bad men, you know, pathological individuals, and we just clean them up or hold them accountable, throw them, throw them in jail, and then we solve the problem, which is such an ignorant way to thinking about, uh, of thinking about a much more systematic problem. Look at the Me Too movement. It had such a big deal. There's so many women who have experienced harassment, abuse, and violence from men. Unless we think that men are genetically deficient, we have to understand why, how we're shaping the narratives of life experience and, and ideologies and beliefs about gender that lead us to these predictable outcomes. So, yeah, it is a big challenge. And it is a, we're talking about big big uh, social change over time, but it, this, is, this is what we have to do. Social change is a messy process, but I think we've made progress. I think, that, for example, there's a lot more men speaking out on these matters than ever before. There's a lot more willingness in the public conversation in spite of what's happening in Washington, D.C., uh, which can many, in many ways undermine the, uh, the great work that a lot of people around the country are doing, but there it is. But I think there's lots of reasons for hope. There is generational change afoot, and those of us who are a little bit older who are in a position of influence obviously have a responsibility to the to the next generation to, to impart whatever we can but you know pretty soon they're going to be in control and and the norms will have shifted we were talking to jason katz a nationally recognized expert on domestic violence issues he was in town recently to talk to judges and community groups about changing the culture of violence
In today's Backyard Quiz, we look at Hawaiian immersion schools. In January 1982, a group of Hawaiian language educators met to discuss strategies to perpetuate the language. From speaking with elders, they knew that raising children in an environment where Hawaiian was the ordinary language of interaction was central to survival of the language. The key would be to reestablish Hawaiian medium education schools that existed during the period of the monarchy. They focused their efforts to nurture a new generation of speakers that would be able to describe the world through the lens of their language and culture. The Aha Punanaleo is the Hawaiian language immersion preschool program born of those discussions. Uh, Punanaleo means nest of voices and depicts the dominant learning method in these centers as students are fed solely their native language and culture, much like the way young birds are cared for in their own nests. The first of these preschools established in Keikaha, Kauai in August 1984. In the following years, schools were established in Hilo and in Honolulu and would continue to expand. Today, there are multiple schools across multiple islands. And congratulations to our winner, Dave of Keikaha. You got it right. And I'm proud to say I have nephews and nieces who were nurtured uh, in this uh, program, preschool program. That is today's quiz. If you have one, you can send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Music for Keiki. There have been studies on the benefits of music for babies and little kids, such as improved brain development. But there's also cultural practices like singing, singing lullabies before bedtime. Now, Hawaii may not have the Wiggles, but there's Uncle Wayne and the Howling Dog Band. Wayne Watkins is a lead singer. The band formed 10 years ago when he was director of the University of Hawaii at Manoa's Children's Center, the on-campus preschool. He met his fellow bandmates, Dr. Jason Fall and Mr. Girish Varma, through the school. One sent his kids there. The other is married to a teacher. Now, the band plays across the state at libraries, preschools, and sometimes Pauhan events. Our producer, Jason Ubai, brought his kids along to a recent concert and talked to Uncle Wayne about the music. Put on the motorcycle pants. Put on the motorcycle boots. It's Wednesday Pauhana at Manoa Gardens at the University of Hawaii. There's dozens of families with their kids, most under the age of five, and the kids are getting on motorcycles. Imaginary motorcycles, of course, but the preschool age kids are eating it up. This is Uncle Wayne's Howling Dog Band. He writes songs that are engaging and interesting to both kids and their parents. What I try to do is find things that I'm interested in and I think somebody else will be interested in. Um, uh, usually the melody and the lyrics are happening kind of at the same time. Often the 
chorus is somewhat like a jingle, something that's really catchy that gets in your head and won't let go. But also some uh, look at some songs like are technically information songs. I mean, uh, one of the a song that I wrote as soon as I moved to Hawaii was uh, All Around Maui. And the lyrics are all around Maui in the deep blue sea. Humpback whales are swimming free. Come every year to birth their young. Play in the water and have some fun. Which, on the surface, that's, you know, a simple little thing. Actually, there's a lot of information there. <laughs> you know, and so that... Uh, and then there were other songs that, uh, like, uh, Everything Flows to the Ocean. You know, is just a, what's the lesson here? You know, everything gets in the ocean. And then there's also silly things like I Love Mud <laughs> with some sophisticated lyrics to it, but the chorus is I Love Mud. <laughs> After my first CD, which was a potpourri of a lot of different things, one of the things that I was asked lots was, well, what's what's the theme of the thing? Well, it's all over the map. I mean, <laughs> there's a lot. So my second one... All of the writing that I did for it was focused on the ocean and, in, and about the creatures in the ocean and about taking care of the ocean. Because the other thing that a lot of parents and, uh, and educators ask is, is it educational? All music is educational, I mean, but that's, people don't really pick up on, you know, that simple thing. Uh, so I deliberately did an entire album. <laughs> we called it Edutainment for Ocean-Loving Kids, <laughs> you know, Humpback Holiday. And so it's all about Holokai, the Hawaiian monk seal, the dolphins, the whales, sharks, fish, you know, the coral reef, all of those things. You said the, all music is educational. Can you talk about that? I, I know you said as a teacher you were playing that's when you started playing music for kids? Well, music is, uh, it's patterns. And it's, uh, if it's a sing-along, it's also language. And so any, any song, even the simplest twinkle, twinkle little star, has some complex language in it. The itsy bitsy spider, four lines, four lines in that whole song. And yet the concepts that are embedded in it, if you really start taking it apart and examining it, you know, are, are very educational. Uh, at the same time, it's primarily fun. You know, you play music, you don't work music. a parent or any caregiver shares singing and playing music with a child, then that is a strong connection. And the connection amongst us is 
really, really important. There, there was a recent study that uh, infants whose, whose caregiver danced with them were more likely to cooperate with their caregiver than infants whose caregiver did not dance with them. I mean, they did a study with infants. Humans respond to music practically before they're born. You know, it is a connection that we all have. I, I mean, here we are in a place that rec uses recorded music, but, uh, you know, there was a time when most music was just, was sung and played live in a family, in a gathering, that sort of thing. A lot of that has moved away and, and become a lot more just, you know, oh, well, I can't play because I can't sound like this wonderful recording. Strumming an ukulele and singing a little song goes a long, long way with connections with individuals, uh, kids, parents, grandparents, all kinds. I'm a goldfish, I'm a goldfish, but I catch a fish to meet the cow. I'm a goldfish, I'm a goldfish, oh, I hope the fish do die. I recently did a workshop for early childhood teachers at the annual conference for early childhood. And the title of the workshop was Itsy Bitsy Spider again with a question mark. And then, yes, again. One of the things that I've explored a lot is very basic old school children's songs with a variety of arrangements. And almost everyone knows Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, Itsy Bitsy Spider, Wheels on the Bus, those kind of things. Many teachers and many parents, you know, sing it virtually wrote. They don't really think about, well, what is the, what is the music here? How could we adjust this? Uh, and this morning for 120 kids up in uh, Kalihi, we were doing Itsy Bitsy Spider, and I called it the last word game. They, I gave them, here are the last words of all four of these lines, and that's the word you sing, and you clap your hands when you do it. And so we probably spent five minutes on Itsy Bitsy Spider. But for them to really tune in to the last word and clap it and sing it loud, they had to follow in their head, or they sang along, you know, all the way up to that. And then we stop, and then we start the next one. So we'd, we rearranged it a little bit. A previous incarnation of Itsy Bitsy Spider was the Spider March and doing that song as a march. <laughs> uh, so those are, the, and we have a trove of, of nursery rhymes, and Auntie Nona, Nona Beamer wrote a lot of songs for young kids, and we sing some of those too. And that's, you know, just looking for something simple that you can tune into and then share it. At the end of every show that I do, whether it's uh, in a library, whether it's a big concert, uh, I always implore parents to hug your kids, tell them how much you love them, read them lots of stories, and sing them lots of songs. Please turn off the TV. <laughs> and for goodness sakes, buckle up, baby. Please turn off the TV. And for goodness sakes, buckle up, baby.
That was producer Jason Ubai chatting with Wayne Watkins of Uncle Wayne and the Howling Dog Band. The band, which caters to Keiki, performs regularly around the state. There will be a Pauhana concert at the University of Hawaii Manoa campus tomorrow and a performance at HPR's Atherton Studio on March 14th. Visit hawaiipublicradio.org for more information. Next time on The World, the Republican Party courts a Spanish-speaking vote. Everybody here Hispanic and or Hispanic American? Who is it? The GOP is reaching out to young first-time Latino voters, and that makes sense. Every 30 seconds, a young Latino in the U.S. turns 18. Republicans court the young Latino vote. It's on The World. Starting this afternoon at 1. America, are we ready? The next test for Democrats and for the election process is the New Hampshire primary. I'm Brian Lehrer from WNYC. We've teamed up with Laura Canoy and New Hampshire Public Radio for a national call-in special on primary night. Iowa failed to shine in its moment in the spotlight. How will New Hampshire do with its first-in-the-nation primary? The time to listen and to participate is now. America, are we ready? Starting this afternoon at 2. We are all out of time, but up tomorrow, we get the take on the coronavirus, COVID-19, from a Hong Kong resident journalist. Have a concern about the virus? Do you think this might affect your business? Share your thoughts. Call our talk back line. That number, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. We are on Facebook at The Conversation HPR and Twitter at HI Conversation. And if you missed any of this show or want to find a past one, Go to hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.